It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. You know, I couldn't be more excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Craig Kleeman. He's an author, speaker, consultant, you know, expert on cold calling and prospecting to the C-suite, among other things. And maybe if we ask nicely, he'll tell us about his new book coming out next year called Outcome-Based Selling, How to Close Deals Faster by Focusing on Your Customer's Goals Over Your Product's Value, which is a great, great title. So when we talk to Craig today, we're going to focus on two things. One is we're going to jump into social selling pool for a bit because Craig's a bit of a contrarian when it comes to social selling and he has some insights about, about it that people need to think about. And then we're going to talk for a while about an important topic for every sales team, which is strategic alignment. How are you breaking down the silos between your internal departments and harnessing these resources to focus on winning new business and helping the customer achieve their goals? So Craig is going to help us sort this all out. Craig, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, pleasure to have you. So tell us a little bit about you. Hey, the first thing I want to tell you is that I'm grateful to be home in my home office today. I've been on the road so darn much. I travel about 200,000 frequent flyer miles a year. And I just got in from Southeast Asia a couple of days ago. And Andy, right now I am staring at Lake Michigan. It is perfectly blue. The sky is perfectly blue. The sun is out. And I will tell you for downtown Chicago on what is today, December 9th, today we're recording this. Yeah. Uh, it is as beautiful as it could be at 57 degrees. So wow. Wow. I'm, a great, I'm, a, I'm a grateful camper today. Thank yeah, you. I can imagine because about a week you'll be knee deep. <clears throat> You're probably right. That's, I'm surprised we're not knee-deep right now, well, actually. There's there's always a price to pay for those extended, nice autumns, and uh, usually a bad winter is one of them. So tell us, how would you get your start in sales? You know, I got started way back as a young man for uh, selling, actually, computer hardware for a company named Aero Electronics. Sure. And we were selling. I started out selling through two end users, and then Aero came out with a value-added reseller sort of plan and really converted most of us into that. And I picked up kind of a specialty in selling Unix-based systems and uh, had some great success there and moved on into software shortly after that and uh, selling uh, executive information or what was, I guess, Gartner Group at that time would have called decision support systems Right, right. and had three years of top sales rep of the year and all those kinds of things. And then uh, left that to start my own company that I grew from zero to twenty million in sales in three and a half years, and uh, we had great success selling our um, digital prepress software solution on the Apple computer platform. No, which one was that? That was well, we called it Express Direct. That was both the name of the company and the name of the product, and uh, we grew it fast. We had twenty-five sellers, all with a million-dollar quota each, yeah, all inside. And uh, sold it to our biggest uh, strategic marketing partner, a uh, company based in Portland, Oregon. And then after that, I got involved with the consulting practice and started writing books and all these sorts of things that you described earlier at the top of the show. So that's a little bit about me. So through that inside mm-hmm. sales team, I imagine that's where you sort of earned this, this title of the king of cold calling. 
Yeah, I will tell you that. Uh, or does somebody I, give that to you unwantedly? You know, I, I my clients started calling me after I, you know, started the practice and started deploying the methodology. And we've now done 75 of these things. 55 of them have been in the SaaS world. And um, my clients just started calling me the world's greatest cold caller. And uh, I took it as a real compliment, of course. And they were sharing that title for me because of these great outcomes we were getting. And, uh, you know, I always evaluate the before and the after and do an observation at first and those kinds of things. And um, the world's greatest cold caller started sticking. So then I started just putting it out there on my digital assets. So I'd say the combination of the great work that we experienced at my first company, which was my big laboratory for creating this whole methodology, and then later, all the tremendous learning that I've gained in the last 10 years and, you know, 75 engagements later. Um, I, I like that title, actually, World's Greatest Gold Caller. I, I don't know if I really am, but I guess I've applied for the job. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> well, there's no one who can take that title away from you. Let's say that. So let's talk about social selling. I mean, you before we get into it, I guess, let's, let's define it because there's a lot of different definitions out there about social selling. So... Before we I said, dive into it, what is it to you? Yeah, good question. And I, quite honestly, I think that it does suffer from being properly defined. In fact, you know, if you want to talk about definition, I, 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 I sort of question even the term social selling. I, I think it was originally earmarked by our good friends at LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not sure of that, but I know a few people at LinkedIn sort of claim that. But I think the term social selling probably is a, a poor term. I think whoever originated it um, ha- has a poor respect for words. You know, if we – dictionary.com defines the word sale as the act of, you know, persuading – let me – I didn't – I should have pulled it up a minute ago. No, I'm okay. going off memory here. But the act of, of persuading and, and, and influencing and, uh, in effect – coaxing someone to make an actual purchase, a transaction. And, you know, social selling, I mean, it literally could never do that. If we define selling or sales as, you know, getting in, uh, providing or demonstrating immutable value, uh, advancing the deal, and then ultimately closing the transaction, uh, other than maybe some, you know, $100, you know, highly transactional Sale. I mean, social selling could never be robust enough to cover what I just described in its totality. So, I, I, the term social selling, just, I'm not going to try and upend it or change it. I think it's already been adopted, but uh, the term itself, I think, is problematic. But the definition of it, I presume, goes back to um, you know the internet, its vast global reach, uh, the commercialization of it. It's, it's reach that is, you know, of course, touched every region of every place, literally in the world, just about, and commerce being transacted that way. And it houses social media. Uh, it houses a bunch of platforms that are, that are social media intensive. And, you know, Facebook, for example, has reached 1 billion subscribers. LinkedIn, I think, is either approaching or is simply or is real close or has surpassed 400 million. And so, the term social selling has to do with using these tools, these internet housed media mediums to uh, actually influence selling. And I presume it does influence, 
but in no way does it actually is it in a full blown sales process. And I have a variety of sort of reasons behind that, but that's probably so, the best so, definition I can give you at this point, Andy. Right. So social selling, I, I think you would be happy if we just took the modifier social off of it because say, yeah, it's just part of what you're going to do, right? You're going to, you may use it to go out and establish connections with people that are potential prospects for your services. Um, you might do it for, I said, getting those first uh, entree, maybe establishing a first face-to-face meeting or something, but it's not the life cycle answer that you talked about. N- not even close. And I, in fact, I see five undeniable benefits to what's commonly referred to as social selling, but I also see seven sort of serious issues. And um, well, you've got num- you've got numbers, so can you you have the five memorized and the seven memorized? I probably do. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go just, for it. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I'll, I'll share those with you. But you know, before I do, I might say this, um, if I could, Andy. The do you remember? Do you remember way back when, 2010, the Arab Spring? Do you remember that movement? Yes, yes. You know, so on December 18th of 2010, the world sort of began watching with deep fascination this regional and political movement, uh, the Arab Spring, which was driven in large part by social media. And you know, our, you know, for our audience who may not know, it was a populist-driven movement mixed with you know, a lot of helpful and unhelpful activities. And 20 nations were cataclysmically affected, and the whole movement became kind of a feeding frenzy that toppled entire governments. And I think that you know a lot of people thought that meaningful change would occur in that region of the world, and and social media had a big influence. I mean, it certainly allowed for you know careful planning. It allowed for tightly you know, managed organization, swift communication, fast and efficient, you know, and discernible influence. And some were kind of calling it... Sounds like sales. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds like what sales is supposed to be, right? And some were kind of calling the movement the dawning of the digital democracy. But anyway, in the end, Andy, um, even though there was an enormous amount of euphoria and incredible sort of jubilation. In the end, even though some cruel dictators were toppled, they were replaced, sadly, by um, probably you know less effective, arguably more despotic leaders. And so I think that social selling and the Arab Spring it kind of have a few things in common. Now, of course, social <laughs> selling is entirely peaceful. It's a wonderfully peaceful, you know, movement. Let's admit that right off the bat. You know, I want to see where I want to see where you're going with this. Well, the thing is, you know, both have started with this euphoria, this enormous euphoria that has been fueled in large part by digital assets, and then large part of those digital assets have been social media. They both started with intoxicating euphoria made possible by the internet and its vast global reach. But in the end, you know, just as the Arab Spring was a colossal disappointment for the region and the world, my concern is that social selling has started with all this great euphoria, has all this great sort of hype behind it. But my fear is that in the end, it's going to be a terrible disappointment for those who think they're adopting a tangible, cogent, repeatable, sustainable sales process when in reality they aren't. 
And, you know, in the end of the day, Andy, you know, uh, my speculation could be wrong, but initial euphoria is never the measuring stick for any new movement. Fair and balanced, documented history, coupled with movement maturity, is the only true measurement. Yeah, so don't you think you're seeing some some? And first of all, <laughs> I love the I love the way the story went from Arab Spring to social selling. <laughs> By the way, that if I give out annual awards at the end of the year for best best, uh, I don't know what to call them metaphor analogy. or analogy. <laughs> that's that's one. Um, that's going to be the winner. So thank you, sir. Yeah. So, but don't you think that social selling has matured? I mean, again, you're seeing more and more. I think even at conferences I've been to recently where people are saying, look, just let's just drop the social from it because it's now, it's just one of the tools that salespeople should be using and it's not the end all be all, but it's, it's certainly critical in many respects for salespeople to be not only in terms of the outreach, but also in terms of building their own, their own platform about themselves, right? As to sharing content with potential prospects and, and building their, their own credibility up. Yeah. Well, that, that that leads to the heart of one of my arguments with this, and that is that when companies make a substantial investment into you know so-called social selling workshops or you know cur- curriculum-based um, you know sort of trainings, um, who really benefits? You know, is, does the company benefit by um, achieving revenue, or does the participant benefit? By achieving personal branding, I, I think that's a real question that ought to be examined. But um, so I'm glad you brought that up. But, are they are they completely <clears throat> antithetical? Uh, I don't. I wouldn't say they're they're completely antithetical. But the question is, you know, is there really an ROI behind this, or are we building a brand for a person whose average tenure, particularly in these lead development roles, is less than two years? You know, so I I think there's probably. I think that at some point it should be examined whether making investments in these things is is worth it. But I do see five undeniable benefits. Okay, let's get to, to the it. five. Let's get to the and five. It, yeah, let's do it, and then, and then I'll talk to you about the seven kind of concerns after that. But um, the first benefit is that you know while the concept of pre-call research, Andy, is nearly 100 years old, and while the term "reach out and touch someone." Was coined by AT and T more than thirty years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, but social and social selling has unquestionably turbocharged this proven legacy practice that is decades old. To be fair, social selling did not define it; it did not invent it, but it does turbocharge it, and that is a good thing for sellers—a very good thing. I, I don't beats, know that, beats the that, phone book. Yeah, I, I don't know that we need a workshop or a curriculum to leverage that possibility, but there's no question that that, that turbocharge impact has happened as it relates to pre-call research. Second benefit, you know, it's just undeniable, is that there's no question that certain social selling practices certainly assists with influence building. Although I will say overdoing it can backfire on you quickly. Overdoing um, it how? Overdoing it. Yeah, I see lots of sellers out there now. Kind of gets into one of my other points, but I will I'll just blend it in here. And that is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about content curation and distribution, which does have the potential to be powerful when applied properly, because it leads to engagement and engagement matters. But the, the 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 real drawback that I'm seeing is sellers are actually 
you know, there are third-party services now that you can kind of look at that produces con- or that serves up content. And you know, Andy, I hate to say it, but I know plenty of sellers who subscribe to these services, scan some articles, pick three from a name that they look up to and think the world respects, and a topic that they think might be hot. And in like in a matter of about 30 seconds, choose three articles that they're going to post for the day just to move the needle on the engagement sub bar of their social selling index. And I believe this whole aspect of just posting content for the sake of posting content is is not helpful. In fact, I think it, it intellectually it's challenging. And I think to some degree there's some intellectual poverty with this sort of process. And there's some degree of spam of just kind of spamming your LinkedIn universe by posting articles that you barely even read just in the name of, I'm going to post three articles, you know? <laughs> but, but okay, granted, in the way you described it, certainly. But, I mean, if a rep took some time to actually curate something that was of value, right, to his audience, right, that could be of value to his audience, and that was not indiscriminate, I mean, then there's, then there's some, there's value there. Oh, listen, I got two undeniable comments for you there. I mean, first of all, posting original content is very valuable. It demonstrates uh, a person's creativity. It, it certainly demonstrates skill. It certainly demonstrates being in tune with current topics. But sort of and, unrealistic and, for salespeople <clears throat> to create content though, or to expect them to. I, I, I would tend to agree with you that it's unrealistic for them to create comprehensive content. But you know, I'll tell you one person who um, curates content beautifully is one of our friends, Chris Beal, the CEO at Connect and Sell. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a person who I admire. He, Rather than just reposting this regurgitated content in the name of posting, Chris actually – uh, finds very, very informative articles. When he reposts, he makes amazingly uh, formidable comments that are that are rooted in and anchored in deep intellectual thought. And every time Chris Beal or I notice Greg Buckles, the CEO of Spring CM, does this as well. Now, every time those two individuals in my network of about fourteen thousand people on LinkedIn. I always read what they have to to re- repost because it, it, it's 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 profound and their comments are profound. So I think the answer is yes, yes, and yes when done properly, and it's no, no, and no, and intellect suffers from intellectual poverty when done improperly. Well, I think what you're bringing up a key point though. For so for sales reps that that are uh, going to be reposting content that really understand that this is part of their job. They're trying to is not just do it for resume value, but trying to you know, build some valuable value-based connection with the prospects is that rather than just reposting the article, as you said, is add a comment to it. And show I'd something. Say, show something of yourself. Show your original creativity, your original value that's coming from you personally. I I love it, Andy. I love what you're saying there. And not only that, just let's get underneath the covers of that, and let's just say this too: choose articles that are highly relevant and that are not. Overdone. I mean, go find real stuff that's fresh and new and that everybody else didn't post because they subscribe to the same content, you know, provider that, you know, the next guy. You guys all have the same Google alerts. 
Yeah, exactly. And that, and that's why I value people like Chris Beal and Greg Buckholz and others. Those are just two that happen to come to mind right now. They, they, they are really pulling out great content and making, you know, very valuable commentary. And, and I think that's a good thing. Okay. Well, good. Well, we, we need to take a short break now. But before we go to the break, I'm going to pose a hypothetical scenario for you to think about, and I'll get your answer when I come back. Okay, great. All right, so here you are. You've been hired as a new sales leader at a company whose sales have stalled out. And they're pretty urgent. Uh, senior management has a fair degree of urgency to make a change. So your first week on the job, what two things could you do that would have the biggest impact going forward? So think about that. And we'll be back after the break with my guest, Craig Kleeman. Attention, sales leaders. Would you like to give your sales team the tools to drive more quality connects, scale their outreach, and spend more time selling? Well, you can with LiveHive. Get your ROI. Try it now at LiveHive.com forward slash ROI. That's LiveHive, L-I-V-E-H-I-V-E dot com forward slash ROI. Welcome back. My guest today, Craig Kleeman, author, consultant, world's number one sales, number world, what's the world's best cold caller? I'm sorry. <laughs> I screwed that up entirely. Sorry about that. <laughs> and okay. got a new book coming mm-hmm. out next year, which you want to talk about as well before the end of the show. So I posed a hypothetical scenario for you before the break. Uh, new sales leader coming into a company of sales have sort of stalled out. What two things could you do in the first week that could have the biggest mm-hmm. impact? Yeah, that's a that's a loaded question there, my friend. Thank you for going easy on me today. <laughs> Wait, everybody, everybody answers this question. Everybody that comes on the show gets this question. All right. Well, I guess I'm not alone in this, and I guess I can't dodge it. No, I, I'm happy to try and answer it. Um, you know, uh, fortunately for me, in the last ten years, I've had the good fortune of working with lots of great companies, lots of great sales leaders. My CEO advisory service has connected me with lots of brilliant CEOs. Um, there's really power in external perspectives, Andy. And I think if Stephen Jobs taught us anything, the late Stephen Jobs, and uh, you probably read his autobiography, I thought it was brilliant. Um, If he taught us anything, it was the importance of of really, really looking through the lenses of external perspectives. Rick Smith, in his book, The Five Traits, of extraordinary executives identified the number one trait uh, of executives. It was an insatiable curiosity. It was the intellectually curious who will always outperform the executive who, who is not. And so in that spirit, I have a rather formulaic model for uh, observing uh, and, and with a keen eye towards, you know, three or four key areas, language, process, workflow, and uh, talent. And so, and and I know you said one week or two weeks or something like that. One week, two things, one week. In, in that week, I would devote all of my efforts to analyzing thoroughly those four things and starting the journey and beginning tangible efforts at changing those four things. All right, so language, language, workflow, process, and talent. So what's language? Language scripts, the language that the sellers are using in customer-facing mode. Uh, is it persuasive? Is it not? Does it conform to uh, um, language and, and um, principles of language 
that will create results. So many companies, you know, kind of, you've heard the phrase, show up and throw up and Mm -hmm. emphasize, you know, product, 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 me, 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 me. But really, business acumen is what's important. And recasting all these scripts so that we can extract from the target buyer, you know, what his or her pain points really are, understand it thoroughly through, again, a high-level business acumen dialogue, and then ultimately play back to them their very pain points to use as our as our um, logic per, for the purchase rationale for the close of the transaction. So really, all four of those things would be extremely tightly examined, and I would start that journey on those co- course correction of those four things. Okay, so let's just go through them again. Language, process... Workflow, talent, okay. And how do you define the difference between process and workflow? Yeah, there's, that's a good question. You know, there, there's a process, is, which is the broad process of what it is we're trying. You know, there's a difference between strategy and tactics. And so, you know, we can't really move ahead with strategy unless we have the right tactics. They're both pretty inter, de, intertwined. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so in that spirit, you know, um, the the – the process is sort of the superset of the entire, you know, like literally the moment a sales rep starts what he or she starts doing from, you know, like, like, like task A to task Z to sort of close the deal. It's just the entire sales process. And the workflow is just the manner in which those tasks happen. Are they laid out in an efficient way? Are they laid out in an interpretable way? Can the seller actually execute on this? Or has this actually been developed in such a way where there are there are gaps, where there are gotchas, where it's impossible for the seller? Are there too many steps in the process? Should we streamline it? Should we punt over this one and and really making it a cohesive model that is that is efficient? That's sort of the two differences there. Sure. So here's a question about in follow up to that, you're talking about you know too many steps. You know, do we have too many steps? Is it are there too many steps or are salespeople are having too require too many contacts and interactions with the customer to move them from point A to point B to you know from interest to decision? I, I think so, you know every organization Andy is a little bit different. I, no two places are exactly the same. Some people have far too many steps. Others have far too few steps. Um, but I, I will say this that um, it's it's disturbing to me to see so many companies adopt this voluminous amounts of of meaningless contacts with their buyers and their prospective buyers. I think it's far more beneficial to have fewer and highly meaningful contacts than bombarding them with nonstop Contacts. I think some buyers are starting to view this all this as spam. Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of the the internet is, in many ways, is 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 just kind of an advanced way of having a courier walk into a buyer's office twenty times a day, dropping a document on his desk <laughs> in his physical inbox. And so I, I you know, I, I'm grieved by some of the things that I see that it, where volume has sadly eclipsed quality. Yeah, so I, I I talk about in my books that and in my work with clients is that every interaction with a prospect has to have a defined goal in terms of the value you're going to deliver. 
And if you can't, and the value has to be defined in something that's going to help them make progress in their buying process. And if you can't meet that minimum standard, then don't do it. Couldn't agree more. Very well stated. Just don't do it. And I know that's anathema to <laughs> lots of sellers and their sales managers because they can't stand the fact that it's like, okay, what's happening with this account? Well, they can't answer the question because they don't know what the customer is expecting from them next. And they get a lot of gunk and junk from a lot of people, and it's pretty tough to get our stuff to make it stand out from the rest of the noise. And that, that also gets back sort of to the language that I have tremendous respect for both the written word and the spoken word. And, uh, you know, a lot of my methodology, that I call it the must-react system. It's the title of my first book, mm-hmm. and it's the core methodology of, you know, what I deploy in, in, on, uh, on most of my consulting engagements and language. Just having a profound respect for language that persuades is a big, big piece of it. And, and again, back to your point, making the interactions highly meaningful is um is, is, is quite quite important. Well, sort of a <clears throat> random question then. Is, is in your experience, you know, ask your opinion on this, you know, has language become devalued, right? Have we become, <clears throat> in this, you know, sort of driven by technology and the different uh, sort of means of communication that existed? You know, texting obviously, you know, doesn't reward necessarily full, complete thoughts, um, you know, but it's powerful in its own way. I mean, have... Yeah, you know, are we in danger of sort of losing some of those basic skills? No, I, Andy, I think we we have lost a lot of these basic skills, and it it does trouble me. I, even though I have thirty one thousand followers on Twitter, I really don't tweet much these days because my mind doesn't think in one hundred and forty characters, and I'm going to stop pretending like it does. Um, I, I I also dedicate, <clears throat> gosh, probably five thousand plus words in my upcoming book to the topic of hermeneutics, uh, hermeneutics and syntactical linguistics, which really gets down to the science of language. And uh, my arguments that I build in, in the book is, um, excuse me, are the importance of applying language, in particular as language is persuasive to the profession of selling. And it, yes, I think in, in so many, many ways, sadly, <clears throat> the profession has in terms of language, has really degenerated or maybe has never been fully generated. But there's no question that we need to begin to look at language with a, with a scholarly view, quite frankly, and apply it in a way that will, in a scholarly way, bring persuasion back so that deals will advance far more quickly and close with much higher percentage rates. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd be interested when your book comes out. We'll have another conversation. We'll talk about that. That'd be great. I'd enjoy that. Thank oh, you. Excellent. Okay, well, we're going to move into the last segment of the show. Where I've got some rapid-fire questions and answers for you. And you can give me one-word answers if you're able to, or you can, you can elaborate as much as you want. Are you ready? I'll give it a try. All right. So, what's the most powerful sales tool in your arsenal? Language. Language. I knew you were going to say that. After this last comment, I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) You got me pegged, Andy. Well, no, no. There's a logical follow-on. Okay. So what's one tool that you use for managing your own sales that you can't live without? A thesaurus. Really? Yeah. 
Okay. And I, I am so, you know, speaking and conferences and the way I craft emails. And yeah, I, I mentioned earlier my profound respect for both the spoken word and the written word. When I, I do these webcasts all the time, you know, thousands of people come to these things. Mm-hmm. And um, no, when I prepare for these things, I, I put 50 hours in usually per webcast. And I'd say the single tool that I use the most to get things crafted in just, and I guess it goes back to language, but it would be a thesaurus. Absolutely. Who's your sales role model? My sales role model has increasingly become a person I mentioned a little bit earlier, Chris Beal, mm-hmm. because of his deep intellectual thought that, I, you know, I haven't really seen Chris in action as a seller. So I guess I have to disclaim that a little bit, but his deep intellectual thought is very impressive. And then another person I have to say is my sales role model, two people. One is my brother, Kerry Kleeman. He's chief revenue officer at Spring CM. What I love about Kerry is his ability to view things analytically, his ability to look size things up organizationally. But he hasn't gotten lost in the administrative gunk and junk he is an absolute deal maker through and through it's pretty tough to find these days a chief revenue officer for a large organization that can understand the organizational and analytical components to the job and still in the field be the best face in the company to close the deal and and carry and a few other people that i've observed in in my career are, are some of those so i have to put my brother carrie gleeman up there shout out for carrie Perfect. Shout out for Carrie. All right. Besides your own book, what's the one book every salesperson should read? I You're going to laugh at this. Um, and the audience is probably going to get a real chuckle out of this. But the name of the book is called Systematic Theology, and it's written by Dr. Wayne Grudem. Who, um, and, and the book is truly a book on just that, Systematic Theology. But he breaks down language. You know, the the term hermeneutics, which is a science of language, has been applied in really three or four primary ways, law, religion, and philosophy. Those are the three sort of areas of society and culture and life where people really want to get to the root and the meaning of words. And to be perfectly candid with you, as I've created my practice, as I've developed call scripts, both, you know, for, for voice and for written, you know, for emails mm-hmm, and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Dr. Grudem's book, Systematic Theology, has been the number one influence on me personally for what I've done. Maybe the second one <clears throat> would be um, Anton Chekhov, a Russian playwright. He wrote, uh, well, he's arguably the best short story. And uh, probably, you know, Google mm-hmm. him and everybody in the world probably says he's the best short story writer in, the, in, in all of history. But uh, he wrote a play called Three Sisters. Uh, yes. Just a fascinating, you've seen it? Nice. Ominous. Oh, mm-hmm. so ominous and rather dark in some ways. But, you know, when it comes to language and process, and what I mean by, in that case, the stage movement along with the language associated with that particular show is absolutely m- mystifies me. I go back and read. Um, so what's the lesson uh, salesperson will mm-hmm. get from it? Well, I, oh, the lesson they, they would get is certainly the power of language. They would certainly get the power of process just by watching the, the, the on-stage movement. I mean, everything is choreographed perfectly. And I think that sellers ought to view all their presentations, 
all their customer communications, all as highly choreographed, you know, just like running lines for a play, you know, I mean, that's how powerful and how crisp and sharp we want sellers to be. So those would be the two things I'd recommend. Yeah. And I I agree with you. I, I always, people ask me that question. I, I say poetry, like take the collection of Robert Frost poems and just see how precise you have to become with your choice of words to make the poem work. Well, it's the same thing with a call script or an email. Could not agree more. All right. Here's really a tough question is what's your favorite music to listen to to sort of get yourself pumped up? Oh, that would, that's pretty easy that I could name three, but I'll name one. That would be you too. Cause I'm a big fan of Bono and he's my personal friend and I uh, am grateful to him. I get backstage passes all the time at all these crazy concerts and stuff, but I, I really admire Bono's life and love his music and, it inspires me, and it does pump me up. Thank you for asking. Okay. So what's the first sales activity you do every day? First sales activity I do every day is check – do you mean other than the other the innocuous things like checking email? No, no. Checking, it could, first sales activity. It could be checking email. Yeah. No, I, I, would say, I would say it's checking email and checking LinkedIn and checking Twitter. And uh, those would probably be the three – those three – here I am. Here I am dissing social selling and telling you the first thing I do is go to social, social selling. Go to Twitter. Social media. <laughs> yeah, I go to social media. <clears throat> but but those were the those are where the important messages come from. And right. I've got to see if I've got a message from a client or something or a prospective client. So okay. those are the first thing I do. Last rather question. rather innocuous, but okay. Last question. <clears throat> yes, sir. The one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople is Is Craig, if you were but these would be from younger sellers, and they often ask me this. Craig, if you were my age, very early in your career, you know, first, second job out of school and really wanting to, to you know, be somebody and make something out of my career, what have you learned sort of now, later in life, after having written, you know, books and, you know, consulted with excuse me, with, with, you know, highly valuable, high growth organizations, things like that. Well, after all those experiences, what do you wish you knew then when you were my age that you now know? And my answer is pretty simple. And that is that fact-based research always trumps opinion or emotion. And when I was young, and I think I love young people, but if if they're anything like me when I was young, it's easy to fall prey to allowing, you know, uh, opinion and emotion override fact-based research and getting to a place of letting research trump everything and facts trump everything. That's the advice I would give. That's the question I get, and that's the advice I would give. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you. Well, hey, I want to thank you for joining me today. My guest has been Craig Kleeman. Craig, tell people how they can find more about you. Yeah, well, they can go to my website, craigkleeman.com. Those are with K's, so it's Craig with a K. And Kleeman with a K, so that's craigkleeman.com. They can also find me on LinkedIn, just Craig Kleeman, and send me a connection request. My Twitter handle is at Craig underscore Kleeman. And I guess if they really wanted to email me these days, they could do it at Craig at craigkleeman.com. So those would be the primary ways to reach me. Very good. Very good. Well, again, thank you for joining me. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. Subscribing to this podcast is an easy way to do that because then you'll make sure you don't miss any of our conversations with top business experts like our guest today. 
Craig Kleeman, who share their expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us, and until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.